0: Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani State of Mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This was almost the perfect murder. Introducing a new podcast from Court TV. They were killed by their own children. Murder and the Menendez brothers. I just started firing. What was in front of you? My parents. Oh, that is on tape. <laughs> Murder and the Menendez Brothers, a Court TV mystery, available now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Welcome to another season of You Must Remember This, a summer season. This season is pretty much the opposite of our last season, which was on the Hollywood Blacklist and which was very long, very serious, and very male. This season is designed to be the You Must Remember This version of a beach read Between now and the end of August, we're going to tell six stories about the life and career of Joan Crawford. Actually, I think I was just born dancing, and that's all I ever wanted to do in life. I know what you like. Now, why can't you be friendly? But I am being friendly. No, I mean it. Friendship's much more lasting than love. It's called, uh, um. What's keeping you awake? Dreams. Bad dreams. I don't see how any home can be complete without children. I'm sorry this had to happen. No, you're going to listen. Most of these stories will take as their starting or central point a person or event that was crucial to a time in Crawford's life and a specific era in Hollywood history in which she moved. Why Joan Crawford? Well, as we'll see, in some ways, Crawford was the quintessential female star of the 20th century, whose career spanned the entirety of the classical Hollywood era, and whose star image was completely tied in to the ebbs and flows of the studio system. At the same time, she was a completely self-made woman who began her life in middle American poverty and had become one of the most famous women in America before she was 25. When given a token shot in Hollywood, she quickly grasped the ways in which she could use her sexuality to her advantage, while also remaking herself, inside and out, to better fit the archetype that her studio could sell. She married the son of the most famous man in Hollywood of the previous generation, then she married a serious actor who couldn't quite manage his own stardom. In between, she began a long-running affair with Hollywood's greatest icon of manhood of the 1930s. Her career flagged as she aged, and then she came back and won the Best Actress Oscar for the ultimate tragic strong woman film, Mildred Pierce, when she was in her early 40s. In her middle age, Joan Crawford became a new kind of star— Moving between women's melodramas and genre films, and gamely lending her iconic image to meta-minded directors like Otto Preminger and Nicholas Ray. The zenith, or nadir, of this, depending on your point of view, was Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, the camp thriller which pitted Crawford against her longtime contemporary and rival, Betty Davis less substantive B-movies followed, until Crawford was essentially forced into retirement. Then, after her death, her legacy became a source of controversy when her adopted daughter Christina published a tell-all memoir, Mommy Dearest, which became a movie starring Faye Dunaway as Crawford. We'll end this season by discussing that film and the evolution in female star lanes, embodied by Faye Dunaway, playing Joan Crawford. Today, we'll begin by discussing Joan's early life, and we'll also describe the Hollywood that she entered into in the mid-1920s. We'll approach the latter by focusing on the father of Joan's future first husband and the king of Hollywood in the late teens and 1920s, Douglas Fairbanks. Join us... Won't you? For the first chapter of Six Degrees of Joan Crawford. Joan Crawford was born in 1904 in Texas, and she was given the name Lucille Lasseur. Her dad often left town for work, and very early in her childhood... He failed to return from one of those trips. Her mother, Anna, moved Lucille and her year-older brother, Hal, to Oklahoma, where Anna became involved with a man named Harry Casson, who owned and operated a small-town opera house. They married, and Lucille, who had been nicknamed Billy, was now Billy Casson. She was now growing up backstage, and she immediately took to the showbiz life. And by the time she was a preteen, she had set her sights on becoming a dancer. Something else had started happening by then, too. At least, according to some chroniclers of Joan's story. By all accounts, Joan had a very close relationship with her stepfather. According to one biography, that relationship was too close. It is a matter of record that eventually... Harry Casson left Anne and the kids. Or perhaps they left him. Most biographies of Crawford say that this had something to do with the fact that Casson was put on trial for embezzlement. And it was only after Casson was gone that little Billy learned that he was not her real dad. But the book Joan Crawford, The Essential Biography, claims that Anna's marriage with Casson fell apart because Anna discovered that her husband had been having sex with her daughter for years, starting when Joan was just 11. While today, almost anyone would call this child abuse, biographers Lawrence Quirk and William Shull, who spoke with Crawford many times before she died, often in informal settings when Crawford was likely drinking, quote her as taking responsibility for the relationship. wasn't incest, the author's claim, Crawford said. We weren't even related. He was gentle and kind, and I led him into it. This is quite a thing for an elderly woman to say about her 11-year-old self, and the fact that it appears in no other biography of Crawford, not even the trashiest one, says to me that it's either a legit exclusive or something that, for whatever reason, later biographers deemed too specious to print. Cork and Shoal were criticized in reviews of their book for leaning too heavily on Crawford herself as a source. But absolutely the same could be said of Charlotte Chandler's Crawford biography, letting stars speak for themselves being kind of Charlotte Chandler's thing. And David Brett's book isn't sourced at all. Donald Spotto's book on Crawford says that Anna's next partner, Harry Huff, was, quote, caught in the act of fondling Crawford, and this precipitated Crawford being shipped off to boarding school. Most of the other books include some version of that story as well. I can't account for why only that one book dealt with the alleged Casson abuse, which the authors stress that it was, even while forwarding Jones quote stating that it wasn't. I'm including this in our story because from my reading about Crawford it seems like the kind of thing she might say. And whether she did make the statement or not, and whether she had this relationship with her stepfather or not, as part of her legend, it has incredible symmetry with the sexual politics of what Crawford for a long while represented on screen. Especially in pre-code movies, Crawford would frequently play women who allowed themselves to be exploited by men... While presenting her participation in that exploitation as her choice. After Casson was gone, the family ended up in Kansas City. Anna took over the management of a laundry, and the family lived on site, and the kids became the laundry's staff. This lasted until Billy was 13, when she was sent to an expensive Catholic school and forced to work to pay her tuition. She was put in the awkward position of scrubbing the toilets and clearing the lunch dishes of her fellow classmates. At 15, after Anna took up with Harry Huff, Billy was sent to a boarding school, where she also had to work to pay her way. And here the work was even harder. After she became Joan Crawford, she would claim that the headmistress treated her like a slave, forcing her to clean from dawn to nightfall, usually in lieu of going to class. But she couldn't go home. As Joan later saw it, she was being punished for supposedly stealing her mom's last husband. My mother was afraid that I'd seduce the new man in her life, not the other way around. I was older, aware of my sexuality, and so were all the boys. My mother was jealous of me and wanted me out of her life. Somehow, without having had a real high school education, Billy was allowed to enroll at Stevens College in Columbia, Missouri. There she found a mentor and father figure in the school president, Dr. James Wood. But the future Joan Crawford, boy crazy and with her heart set on dancing for a living, and resentful of the rich bitches who looked down on her and her cheap clothes, was not long for college. By 1921, she'd moved back in with her mom and her mom's boyfriend in Kansas City and was working in a department store. She went to an open-call audition for dancers for a traveling show, and much to her own surprise, she got the job. For her professional debut, Billy decided to professionally revert back to her given name, Lucille Lesour. Those close to her continued to call her Billy, at least for a while. That show was a bust, and Billy was at a crossroads. Feeling like there was nothing left for her in Kansas City but dead end retail jobs and a family that didn't want her, she decided to go to Chicago. In Chicago, Billy looked up a guy named Ernie Young, an agent who she had heard was a quote unquote casting couch cougar. So Joan, as she put it, jumped on Ernie's couch and emerged with a job dancing in a local nightclub. There she was seen by New York theater producer J.J. Schubert, and soon, Billy was dancing on Broadway. Billy loved New York and loved the chorus girl lifestyle. She loved being surrounded by adoring men, many of whom were eager to spoil her in exchange for her company. And she loved being good at her job. A few years went by, and then Lucille met Harry Rath. Raph was a producer at the newly-formed Metro-Golden-Mayer Studios, and he had come to New York looking for talent. Looking for talent usually meant exchanging promises of stardom for sex. And it appears that this is the way it started with Raph and Lucille, too. She made a screen test, and quid pro quo was exchanged. But whether it was the quality of the screen test or the quality of something else... Raph made good on his promises to Lucille. He got her a standard contract at MGM and put her on a train for Los Angeles in 1924. When the future Joan Crawford arrived in Hollywood in 1924, the film industry was suffering from a bit of shell shock, adapting to the presence of Will Hayes, the former postmaster general who had been hired to serve as a censorship czar in the aftermath of a number of scandals, including the rape trials of Fatty Arbuckle and the murder of director William Desmond Taylor. Gloria Swanson and Harold Lloyd were reliably turning out hits, Clark Gable made his film debut, and one of the biggest films of the year, The Thief of Baghdad, was made by the man who would in five years' time become Billy's reluctant father-in-law. In In 1924, Douglas Fairbanks was in the prime of the second phase of his career. Like his famous wife, Mary Pickford, Douglas started out playing adults and moved into playing adolescents. Yet he was no ingenue in ringlets. Even when he was playing Robin Hood and D'Artagnan while on the verge of turning 40... Fairbanks' image combined boyish spirit with a dark tan and chiseled, capable physique. Famous since 1915, when his first film, The Lamb, had been a smash hit, Fairbanks had remade his screen career in 1920. Before that, his persona had been all can-do physical comedy, rooted in the actor's personal belief in the Teddy Roosevelt model of manhood. Though he did during the first part of his career make movies with fantasy elements, up to and including his own superhuman stunt work, these were comparatively realistic films, compared to what came next, which could be summed up as the swashbuckling years. Fairbanks grew up in Denver. His father, Hezekiah Ullman, was his mother's third husband. He was a lawyer who had helped her secure a divorce from her second husband, and then abandoned his own family in order to marry Douglas's mom and have two kids with her. Douglas Fairbanks probably didn't even know that his father was a bigamist, and yet he still harbored two sources of shame about his dad. The fact that Ullman was Jewish, and that he abandoned Douglas, his brother, and his mother when Douglas was five. Fairbanks was the name of his mother's long-deceased first husband. At the age of 16, Douglas Fairbanks was determined to leave home. He was either going to join a Christian mission to Africa or join a traveling theater troupe. Weighing the alternatives, his mother gave her blessing to the actor's life. Broadway stardom followed, as did a marriage to Beth Sully, an heiress and shrewd businesswoman who would manage Fairbanks' career and professional affairs for the next 10 years. She'd also bear him a son. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. in 1909. In 1915, Fairbanks was lured to Hollywood. It's almost surprising that it took that long, given how easily and perfectly Fairbanks adapted to working before the camera. Here was an actor whose stage reviews often noted that he wasn't exactly handsome. And yet, from his first film on, he became early Hollywood's defining model Of male virility. It was a time when such roles were open for walk ins. Hollywood is a world being made, he observed of his first days in the company town. Topsy-turvy, bums, college athletes, prize fighters, professors, all out there, all tossed together as if by an eruption, by a volcano. It's important to note how massively the film industry changed after 1915, the year that marked the film release of The Birth of a Nation. It had also only been a couple of years since movie stars had started to be credited by their real names and not descriptive nicknames. The actress-born Gladys Smith had made dozens of films promoted as starring The Girl with the Curls before she demanded that she be credited on screen by the name Mary Pickford. Pickford would become the most famous woman of her generation, and, as Douglas Fairbanks' second wife, one half of Hollywood's first true superstar power couple. They met in 1916. Both were in chauffeured cars with their respective first spouses on their way to a summer house party. Mary's husband, Owen Thomas, was a mean drunk who she actively disliked. But when her car pulled up in traffic next to the Fairbanks Mobile... America's sweetheart caught a glimpse of the man in the other car's back seat, who had a leopard-skin rug draped over his lap. She was less than impressed. Once they arrived at the same party, Pickford further disapproved of the flamboyant way Doug held court in the center of the room. But then he decided to lead a splinter group on a nature walk. And Mary ended up stranded on a log over a stream afraid to jump to the other side. In plain view of both of their spouses, Douglas swept her up in his arms and carried her. In one fell swoop, Mary Pickford's defenses were broken down. The pair would begin a flirtation, which blossomed into a romance. He was in awe of her talent and level of achievement, which was and would remain higher than his. And he was Douglas Fairbanks, So, he could pretty much get it. But they were both Catholics, and neither took untangling their existing marriages lightly. When World War I got underway, Fairbanks and Pickford, along with Charlie Chaplin, were at the forefront of the effort to rouse enthusiasm for the fight by tirelessly making public appearances and selling war bonds. Fairbanks went a step further by producing and starring in a bunch of propaganda films and even working war propaganda into his own, ostensibly normal films. It was around this time that Pickford, a married woman of 25, and in fact the most famous and one of the richest women in America, began routinely portraying tween protagonists. Her illicit boyfriend was effortlessly aligned with his on-screen persona of all-American manhood. As George Creel of the Office of War Information described Fairbanks, He is what every American might be, ought to be, and frequently is not. Because it was much less saleable, Mary had to expend much more effort to hide the real her. On screen, she was Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. Off screen, she was a 25-year-old woman with a husband she didn't want and a secret lover. Fairbanks left his wife in 1918, but because they didn't want their divorces to appear to be coordinated... Mary waited over a year to negotiate a settlement with her husband, despite the fact that columnists had been commenting on Pickford and Fairbanks's apparent closeness for over two years at that point. In divorce court, Mary refused alimony, and the judge, who knew only her birth name and didn't recognize her as Mary Pickford, said, Do you think you will be able to earn your own living? She would easily out-earn her first husband, and her second husband's lifelong incomes combined. Pickford and Fairbanks would marry in secret in late March 1920, and by April 1st, it was all over the press. They moved into Fairbanks' home, a mansion in Beverly Hills, which he declared was his gift to Mary, and which was soon dubbed Pickfair. It's perhaps fitting that Fairbanks' transition from comedies set in something like real life to fantasy action pictures set in the past and or in far-off lands coincided with his marriage to his only match in terms of movie stardom. tacitly acknowledging the years-long, illicit affair that broke up both of their first marriages by making their union official as soon as they legally could and emerging more famous and beloved than ever— Mary and Doug were demonstrating that the rules of everyday reality didn't apply to them. Part of Fairbanks's success as an actor owed to his success as a producer and guiding creative force of his movies. From close to the very beginning, he had a hand in choosing the scenario and intertitle writers of his films, as well as his directors. He worked frequently with wife and husband writing and directing team Anita Lowe's and John Emerson, as well as director Alan Dwan. Victor Fleming, later director of The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind, got his start as a visual stylist acting as cinematographer on Fairbanks' films. Fairbanks was able to exercise even more control after he, Pickford, Chaplin, and D.W. Griffith teamed up to form United Artists. United Artists didn't form until 1919, but you could say the seed was planted in 1915, when Mary discovered that Adolf Zucker, who ran her studio, Famous Players, was misreporting ticket sales so as to underpay her her contractual share of profits. When her contract was up for renewal, Pickford was able to play hardball, and she received a very lucrative New Deal and her own shingle under which to produce her movies. Soon thereafter, Fairbanks joined Pickford at Famous Players, which would soon be known as Paramount. Then, the major film exhibitors banded together to form a distribution company called First National, which signed Mary Pickford and Charlie Chaplin. But by the time Fairbanks' contract at Paramount was nearing its end, he and Chaplin heard a rumor that First National and Paramount were talking about merging. If this happened, it would create a studio monopoly. And it would be disastrous for big stars like themselves, who would suddenly have no bargaining power. In fact, by hiring a female private detective to seduce a man in the know, Chaplin and Fairbanks discovered that this studio conglomerate was planning to sign exclusive deals with every major movie theater in the nation, with the express purpose of putting the industry on a proper business basis instead of having it run by a bunch of crazy actors getting astronomical salaries. The idea for United Artists, which would be the first distributor owned by stars expressly to serve as an end run around the studios, to get the films they produced themselves into theaters without having to deal with a middleman, started as a ploy to scare the studios away from this merger. But it got a seriousness of purpose when B.P. Schulberg and Hiram Abrams, two employees of Paramount, secretly drafted a document titled 80 Reasons for United Artists to inspire Chaplin, Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, D.W. Griffith, and Western star William S. Hart to band together, and to hire Abrams and Schulberg to help them. The stars did take inspiration from the 80 Reasons, but according to Chaplin, they still intended to back down after announcing the company if the first national Paramount merger fell apart. But then the United Artists' announcement got tons of favorable press. By the time they staged an in-costume signing of an agreement to join forces, William Hart had dropped out, and Abrams and Schulberg had accepted much smaller roles in management than they had originally desired. But United Artists was now a thing, and with its first release, Fairbanks's His Majesty the American, it proved that it was a thing that could work. That film, which began with a mandate to promote President Wilson's League of Nations, returned a profit of over $325,000, which was more than six times what Fairbanks' previous most popular film had netted for his production company. Freed from having to work at the fast, factory-like pace set by a studio, over the course of the 1920s, Fairbanks made eight silent, swashbuckling action films— each one attempting to outdo the last in terms of the lavishness of its sets and the impossibility of its spectacle. 1924, the year Joan Crawford arrived in Hollywood, brought on the release of The Thief of Baghdad. Thanks to his own athletic prowess, his understanding of the camera and the assistance of carefully constructed sets, Fairbanks had appeared to soar before. One of his signature moves was to scale city buildings, apparently unassisted. But in The Thief of Baghdad, in just one example of the groundbreaking special effects his films were beginning to employ, he glided through the sky on a flying carpet, smilingly overseeing his domain. Fairbanks's exceptionalism was part of his brand. That he was capable of unique things and could get away with unique things, that he was the only one who had the money and power to mount such spectacles. And he was the only man in Hollywood whose persona was perfectly matched to it. All of this began to be worked into the marketing of his movies. With The Black Pirate in 1926, Fairbanks had another innovation to show off. This would be the first feature film shot in technicolor. Only Douglas Fairbanks could make such a picture, read the ads for The Black Pirate in glorious natural colors. And this is how Fairbanks was seen off-screen, too. Pickfair was perceived as Doug and Mary's palace on a hill, where they held court over a kingdom, Hollywood, which they presided over with the same ease and grace which marked Fairbanks' movie stunts. Pickfair was run like an old-fashioned English country house. Downton Abbey, essentially, except without a retinue of daughters that needed marrying off. But certainly it was Beverly Hills's most robust domestic employer. Everyone in Hollywood wanted to be invited to Pickfair, but to earn an invitation, you had to prove that you were cut from the best cloth. The dinner table was set for 15 every night, and Charlie Chaplin had a designated guest room where he crashed frequently. In 1922, Chaplin bought the parcel of land next door to Pickfair, telling his assistant, "'I've just bought a hill. Get me a house.'" Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford were the first movie stars referred to as royalty, the king and queen of Hollywood. They wouldn't be the last. By 1925, over at MGM, Norma Shearer was being called the queen of the lot. Not because her celebrity matched Pickford's, but because she was romantically involved with genius producer Irving Thalberg. And thus, she was treated like a species above most of the studio's subjects. Billy got to see this firsthand. Right away. Her first job at MGM was doubling for Shearer in Lady of the Night, and then she had a supporting role in another vehicle for the Queen of the Lot, Pretty Ladies. Quickly, Billy came to the realization that a lowly subject such as herself couldn't compete with a queen on the Queen's terms in the royal court. And no one at MGM was going to teach her how to conquer MGM. It was apparent from the start that they had hired her to be what future MGM star Lana Turner referred to as a six-month option girl, which meant that she was expected to do what she was told for six months, and that most of what she would be told to do was to be an agreeable date to studio executives and or men from out of town whom the studio executives wanted to impress. Joan would later acknowledge to one of her biographers that this sort of thing was part of her early life at MGM. But these experiences may have made her even more determined to make something of her time in Hollywood, to not settle for nothing but a train ticket back to the Midwest in exchange for her services rendered. Eyewitness accounts of Billy's early days in Hollywood suggested that she needed some polishing. Frederica Sager-Mass, a lady screenwriter under contract to MGM, remembered being part of the party who went to go and meet a Lucille LeSueur at the train station on her arrival in Los Angeles. LeSueur was certainly applicable, Sager Moss later observed. She was a gum-chewing dame, heavily made up, skirts up to her belly button, wildly frizzed hair, an obvious strumpet. And yet, Sager Moss, sensed that this wasn't just another girl brought out by an executive to tend to his personal services. This was a girl who was determined to have a career. Crude as she was, Sager Moss later wrote, everything about her seemed to say, Look out. I'm in a hurry. Make room. This determination was unusual in the kind of girl that everyone assumed was essentially on a temporary vacation, but was ultimately a nobody-going-nowhere. She spent much of the following year on the dance floor at the Coconut Grove, the hot nightclub in the newly opened Ambassador Hotel. As Joan later remembered it, she forced her bosses and the local reporters to notice her by any means necessary. My skirts had to be a trifle shorter, my heels a little higher, my hair a tint brighter and my dancing faster, Crawford later remembered. She won over 100 dance contests at the Grove. But more importantly, as she put it, Hollywood saw me in action. And then it was decided that Lucille LaSueur needed a new name. There have historically been a few different explanations for this, One is that stories of Lucille's exploits, meaning her sexual history in Chicago, New York, and at the behest of MGM in Los Angeles, were bound to catch up with her. In some sense, they already had. Director William Wellman, who directed our heroine in a 1926 film called The Boob, remembered that Joan, quote, "...did have a reputation in those early days as quite a wild slut." Another is that her given name sounded too made up, too much like the stage name of a woman of low birth trying to pretend otherwise. This is exactly what Lucille was, so even though her real name was not a stage name, it had to go. Then there was the fact that Seur sounded a lot like sewer, as in a Frenchified moniker for a dump stream. It was just too easy to make fun of. With the name change came a conscious personality change. Sagor Moss remembers that Crawford called her up and told her that she was putting Lucille LeSueur in the sewer. Lucille LeSueur, I'm burying her, Joan said, for good. I was thinking I ought to change like and kind of live up to being Joan Crawford because Joan Crawford is going to be a Hollywood star. That's why she came out here. When Frederica was like... "'and how can I help you?' "'Joan responded, "'You dress like a lady. "'I need that. "'I want to be dressed right. "'Smart. "'I figured you could help.' "'The screenwriter took the starlet shopping for lady clothes, "'dark suits and dresses, "'matching coats and handbags. "'And Joan herself got to work adopting the personality "'that went with the clothes. "'She studied French and a proper English diction. "'She started reading voraciously, "'both actual books and the dictionary.' It became impossible to write her off as just a wild slut. And the more powerful she became, the more she was free to pursue her sexual appetite without a care for what anyone thought. The name change was the first real sign that MGM, which only used her as an extra and stand-in for most of her first year in Los Angeles, was starting to take the newly dubbed Joan Crawford seriously. A lot of girls made it onto the lot because one or more executives wanted to or had gone to bed with them. Not a lot of girls made it much further, probably because they were stigmatized due to their origins. Certainly stars that rose through other means looked down on the six-month option girls. But Louis B. Mayer saw something in Joan that made him not care much where she came from or how she got to his studio. Her past was not something that would go away easily. Once Joan was flush enough to rent a decent house, her brother and mother came out of the woodwork, showing up in Los Angeles to help her spend her newfound comparative riches. When Joan would threaten to cut them off, they would threaten to sell or spread stories about what Billy and Lucille got up to before Joan started running the show. According to one biographer, Joan's brother Hal is the source of the story that Joan appeared in a porn film before she was famous. This biographer says that story was false. There is other testimony that suggests otherwise, however, which we'll get to next week. Of the many silent films Joan appeared in during her first years at MGM, a few stand out. One is The Unknown, a Carney pic starring Lon Chaney as a knife thrower who pretends to be armless. And Joan is the beautiful girl he loves, who happens to be afraid to be touched. The modern-day reviews I've read of the unknown invariably comment on Joan's incredible beauty, as though it's a surprise. That's definitely an indication of the extent to which Crawford's entire, nearly 50-year career has been reduced to one or two images. The big lips and padded shoulders of Mildred Pierce and its camp parody in Mommy Dearest— Of course, Crawford was naturally gifted with a face and body that the camera loved. The bombshells who came later had curves in all the right places. Joan Crawford had angles in all the right places. With the unknown, for the first time, critics noticed Joan and included praise for her in their write-ups of the film. This convinced MGM it was time to pair her with a top-flight male star, and John Gilbert was the one they picked. This was a good choice in Joan's mind, as she later explained, "...our chemistry on screen may have been pretty hot. Let's face it, as a couple, we were pure sex. I think the first time that ever really came across with one of my leading men." But Gilbert showed no interest in carrying that pure sex off-screen he was too obsessed with Greta Garbo at the time. The difference between Garbo and Crawford may not have been so apparent to the public in 1927, before Joan's star image had fully coalesced, but by the time they appeared together in the same film, the mega-hit Grand Hotel, it would be impossible to ignore. In two short years at MGM, the former Lucille Lasseur had come a long way. She still had a long way to go, Norma Shearer was still Queen of the Lot, and Mary Pickford was still Queen of Hollywood, although she was facing stiff competition from Clara Bow, who starred in four of the ten most profitable films of 1927, including Wings and It. The next few years would be challenging ones at Pickfair. My Best Girl, Pickford's hit film of 1927, would be her last silent. Fairbanks chugged along, releasing his last silent epic, The Iron Mask, two years later. This was a sequel to the Three Musketeers movie he had made a few years before, and it was one of his best. But by 1929, sound was becoming an inevitability, and Fairbanks had a nearly 20-year-old son who was determined to mount his own acting career and take his own superstar wife. Join us next week for part two of Six Degrees of Joan Crawford. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This episode was edited by Sam Dingman. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz, and our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. If you like the show... Please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. Subscribing to us on iTunes and rating and reviewing the show there really helps other people find it. You can also follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod or find us on Facebook or Instagram, too. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.